Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the EMG Gold podcast. I'm your host for today, Sam Boyassi, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Pierre Bourdage, Global Head of Biopharmaceuticals at Sandos. Welcome, Pierre. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, for a quick bit of background about Pierre, for those of you who don't know him, before we dive straight in. Prior to joining the team at Sandos, Pierre worked consistently within the Novartis-owned pharmaceutical companies Alcon and, of course, the Novartis Pharmaceuticals Company. And over a 16-year period, Pierre's numerous roles have taken him all over the world and now in the heart of Europe. His work and expertise span all commercial aspects from medical devices to generics, and his specialties are immunology, cardiology, and neuroscience. And that is a lot of ground to cover. So let's get straight in. So Pierre, you have started your new leadership position in a very interesting but complicated time. How have you had to adapt to the new normal in the current climate? And what does that look like for Sandoz? Yes, well, yes, definitely. Um, it's been a very interesting, challenging, and unprecedented time. Um, I started my new leadership position about a year ago. Um, and then, of course, like all of us, um, uh, since COVID, have experienced uh, something new and challenging and different every day. Um, and so um, how, you know, how has it been in this complicated time and how have I adapted to the new normal and, and our company? Um, um, I think COVID has brought um, a, a light um, to, to be shown on the fact that um, access to effective high quality treatments um, is something that we can't take for granted. And I think back to the February, March period where we had a sudden huge spike in demand for our medicines. Um, mm. And it's you know very challenging to move a supply chain that quickly um, on such short notice. And there was demand for anti-infectives and hospital products used in acute situations. Um, and so I look back at that and I think that I'm, I'm really proud of the way Sandoz and the Novartis company operated. Um, we had to first take care of our own associates um, because we have a lot of associates that work in manufacturing operations and development mm -hmm. sites and in our headquarters and, you know, provide an environment where they could either do it virtually um, or if they were working in a site, which many of them had to continue to do, to do it safely. Um, so I guess that, that was priority number one. And then priority number two was how do we ensure stable and continuous supply despite the very fast rise in demand? Um, and Sandoz, to a large extent, did this very, very well. The large proportion of all the orders that we had were filled uh, on time. And we also went beyond. We, we did two things that um, I think I'm you know, in, in reflection, I'm very proud of. Um, we very on early in the pandemic committed publicly to keeping our prices stable uh, for the group of products, 15, 20 products that were experiencing the, the most significant spike in demand. And that was to make sure that um, ultimately, um, you know, from a procurement standpoint, you're not suddenly in a position where you're seeing spiking prices with the increased demands that you need. Um, 
And the other element is we started a Novartis pandemic response portfolio, and that was focused on the African Union member states. But that was to make sure that um, we alleviate all these logistical and supply constraints and that we offer a portfolio at a no profit level for our company. Um, and so really kind of on, on a cost basis. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the general sense of how we, we adapted over the last year. Really fascinating and, and glad to hear that, especially on the kind of demand side, you were all able to fulfill the majority of them. So that is really, really encouraging and positive to hear. I want to talk to you about oncology as a therapeutic area, Pierre, because it is one of the most competitive ones within the pharma industry. But as we know, it can bring high treatment costs and a lot of stress for patients. What do you see as the solution for delivering affordable care to cancer patients who face such mounting costs? The cancer care is, is obviously close to my heart, like many of us. Uh, cancer has um, touched my family um, and unfortunately touching you know, a lot of our families and, and friends. Um, and um, it's unfortunately a paradox where um, we are offering more and more innovative treatments and solutions for cancer, but the costs in cancer are growing exponentially. Um, I've got figures um, that show that uh, the, the spend uh, worldwide was about $14 billion in 2015 on cancer care. And it's moved to just over $21 billion this year. So just in a five-year period, we've added well over $6 billion in cost um, or just under 50% growth. So you've, you've got this tremendous growth. Um, you have a tremendous unmet need, but then you zoom out of it and you realize that it's not just about cancer. This is happening in many therapeutic areas. And we know that healthcare costs have been growing ahead of inflation for a lot of years. So this is an area I worry about. Um, the International Monetary Fund just issued um, data that showed that in the past six months, we've actually taken on globally more than $10 trillion in new debt. And so the idea moving forward or the challenge moving forward is with trends pre-COVID that were already accelerated on healthcare spend way above inflation. And now with monumental debt challenges coming out of COVID, how are we going to solve this? Um, how are we going to find equilibrium and balance? And the ideas that, that, that I see are, um, uh, one is data and digital. Um, so I, in my time, um, living in different countries, in Canada, in the UK, and, and now in Germany, um, but probably the UK in particular. I saw the NHS investing a lot in data science and digital innovation, whether they were using artificial intelligence or machine learning to allow clinical decision support or diagnostic support, or they were streamlining their administrative systems to drive more integration and simplification and just less paperwork and manual process. And I think also there was a good level of benchmarking where you were able to look at your healthcare system and analyze it compared to other country healthcare systems and models. Um, and then the other area beyond data and digital, um, that's one of the, the solution areas to the 
financial sustainability of healthcare is in the area where I work, um, where we offer high quality generics and biosimilars at affordable prices that allow the healthcare system to save a lot of money. Um, and, you know, I don't know if those two solutions alone are going to ultimately be enough. Um, but I do know that both those areas, data and digital technology and high quality generics and biosimilars, they both have a long runway ahead of them of providing savings. Um, and there, you know, there's ample opportunity for systems to adopt them. And, and you just touched there on something that I wanted to ask you next. And, you know, an area where you have a lot of expertise, as you just said, and where Sandoz is investing is the biosimilars market. And as many countries face aging populations and growing healthcare costs, um, are biosimilars really the answer to a more sustainable healthcare system? And, and what are your projections for the future of biosimilars? Yes, I'd say they're they're part of the answer, and they're they're an important part of the answer. Um, they can play a really significant role in supporting more accessibility, affordability, and sustainability. Um, and um, you know, ultimately, they're developed by a very rigorous process. Um, it takes somewhere between seven to ten years to develop and and successfully register a biosimilar. Um, in Europe, United States, and, and other countries. Um, and they match the reference medicine uh, in terms of safety and efficacy and quality. Um, so there's no clinically meaningful difference for a patient. And if you think about biologics alone, so the reference biologics, the originators, it's about $400 billion a year in spend on biologic medicines. Um, now, if I zoom in to the United States, the data shows that biologics are about 2% of all prescriptions, but they're up to 37% of all prescription spending. So you've got to look at that and wonder, you know, if biologics are being used more and more, and they're 2% of volume, but 37% of cost, can we make that more sustainable? And the answer is yes. Um, biosimilars can enter the market and offer savings from negative 15 to up to negative 80% compared to the originator. And so your savings are in the billions, in the tens of billions, and even hundreds of billions globally, if we are able to um, um, have them registered and have them then adopted and used. Um, so I think that governments don't have to look very far to look for those opportunities. Some governments are really leading. Um, and in other areas, there's an opportunity to continue to, to drive more adoption. Um, and that's essentially what makes us so passionate um, within Sandoz because it, you know, we feel that we can help patients, we can help the healthcare system, and we can help society. Um, because if you're driving healthcare efficiency, you're also allowing for newer medicines to be adopted. And often those newer medicines come with a high price tag, but they come with a high impact as well. And I think some of those stats that you just mentioned kind of speak for themselves as well. So that is very, very fascinating. And a lot of that I was certainly not aware of. So exciting, very exciting. So thank you for, for talking to us about that. And I want to kind of look ahead because as we make our preparations for the upcoming year of 2021, 
Are there any main trends that you suspect to see emerge over the next 12 months, Pierre? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd say um, expect the unexpected. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, this summer I was feeling um, like, I guess, like many of us, very um, positive about the decrease in coronavirus cases mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, we had gone through a very difficult spring period, uh, but we had, um, we were able to bend the trend. Um, and then, of course, unfortunately, and maybe not surprisingly, we're now seeing wave two occurring uh, rather rapidly. And I think my outlook for next year is that coronavirus is certainly taught us that managing it is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Um, and I, I think that's one aspect in 2021 to be aware of is that we are on a marathon and the marathon will continue. Um, now, out of that process, I think there will be um, a few really positive things. So data and digital innovation um, is probably number one on that list, because as we know, necessity is the great motivator. Um, and coronavirus has spurred a lot of acceleration, the use of existing digital technologies, whether it be telemedicine or um, other tools. But there are other tools, um, remote monitoring, uh, diagnostics, adherence. um, And I think healthcare systems can work with industry and can work with each other uh, within the healthcare system to integrate and really adopt data and digital innovation. There's another aspect that I see that's very positive um, is that we see increasing collaboration. So during coronavirus, there were many companies that have worked together, but there's also a very high level of collaboration between governments, healthcare systems, um, nonprofit organizations, and companies to just find solutions and offer joined up care uh, in a way that... um, probably wasn't done in the past, again, just due to the necessity. And then the third area for 2021, um, easier said than done, but critically important, ensuring stable, high quality supply. Um, If we're seeing a wave two in coronavirus cases, then certainly we can expect that there'll be another surge of uh, requirements for medicines, antivirals, anti-infectives, and other medicines used in these acute situations. Um, So how can we plan ahead of time, which we at Sandoz are doing, but to make sure that um, we're going to be able to offer stable, high quality supply and maintain our pricing commitment? Really good points. And I particularly love the second one that you mentioned, which was around the collaboration aspect and all of these organizations and institutions coming together because of the necessity, which then drives the action. So one of the things that I really hope is to just see that continue even past the corona world, um, to kind of see those collaborations continue, which I know the pharmaceutical industry is typically relatively good at, uh, but to see more of that uh, would be brilliant. Um, Pierre, I'd love to know, this is one of my favourite questions to ask. I try not to ask everyone this and overdo it, but I would love to know from you, what stands out to you as one of your proudest moments of your career in the pharmaceutical industry to date? Yeah, um, I've got 
a lot of moments of pride. Um, one of them to highlight uh, is a personal moment um, that occurred a long time ago in, in 2003. Um, and it was a really difficult time for, for my family. So my mother was unfortunately affected with um, breast cancer. And um, at that time, um, there were not as many medications available for breast cancer as there are today. Um, and luckily, one of the medications that um, she was prescribed was a Novartis medicine and, and one from the um, innovative uh, medicines uh, portfolio in the company. And I remember at that time, you know, it was early in my career, and you have um, obviously this emotional uh, vulnerability um, and sudden sense of um, hopelessness, if you will. Um, and you realize how thankful um, and um, lucky and fortunate you are to have innovative medicines that are available that can help. Mm -hmm. um, and when I look back at this, it makes me really thankful for the industry. Um, and I'm, it also reminds me of what we're going through now. Um, now, my, my company is not involved currently in the vaccine research area. We're involved in a number of different other therapeutic areas for coronavirus. Um, but I'm thankful for the dozens of companies that are investing a lot of time, money, and resource to you know, potentially uh, bring a vaccine to market that's safe and efficacious. And the reality is um, we also have to accept that, you know, of the dozens of companies investing, um, not all of them are going to make it. And some of them are going to um, fail um, and uh, lose a lot of money. Um, and that's, that's a healthy part of the health system ecosystem. Um, but we're fortunate that there's, you know, community that's getting behind it and investing in every angle possible. Um, so that that's a moment of pride for me that I worked for a company that brought that innovation. But I also link it back to pride in the industry overall, not just necessarily to myself or, or my company. I love that. Beautiful answer. Thank you for sharing that, Pierre. Um, final question for you. So. Back in the day, I understand that you were a member of the Canadian Grenadier Guards. Could you tell us about some of the main lessons you've learned in that role and how that experience has helped you in your pharmaceutical career? Yes, well, the Grenadier Guards um, are part of a Canadian infantry regiment, um, but obviously very similar to uh, regiments um, in, in England where um, you might be familiar with the red tunic and the black bearskin. Um, yeah. And so um, it was a, an interesting and unique experience. And I'd say you can break it down in two ways. So one was basic infantry training. So your traditional boot camp, um, army, military exercises, defense training, et cetera. And then the second was the more formal parade duty where you're in that ceremonial dress with the red tunic and the black mm. bear skin and the bayoneted rifle. And, um, you know, you're in very public events. Um, um, one of the events that I performed at um, was a, a, a regiment parade actually for the queen in her visit to, to Canada mm. at that time. And she was uh, inspecting the troops and, and, 
walked by myself and inspected my uniform and, and walked on. Um, and I, I think those kind of um, experiences teach you a lot about self-reliance and resourcefulness, at least on the, the infantry side. Um, and then on the, the parade side, it's more about the mental capacities um, um, and the, the dedication and practice that you need mm-hmm. for every you know, 30 minutes of public drilling that you see, where you see hundreds of military personnel um, executing a synchronized drill, there are hours and hours, countless hours of uh, practice. Um, And so if I think of those in my career, um, I think they've really helped me um, uh, value dedication and practice and resilience. And um, they, they helped me um, kind of build those skills early on in life, and then obviously have to keep practicing and improving them. But value that um, they're they're a key equation in in successful management of self or whatever task that you're doing. Yeah, love that. Brilliant. Thank you, Pierre. It's really, really exciting to hear about all the great work going on at Sandos and and hear your plans and predictions for the future of pharma. I do wish we could talk for longer, but I am afraid that is all we have time for on this week's episode. Thank you again, Pierre, for taking the time to speak to me today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners. Do join us again next week for another episode of the EMG Gold Podcast. Till then.